So the vast majority of Americans would say they believe in God. The prevailing view regarding God in America, and this would include most Christians, is what Notre Dame sociologist Christian Smith called moralistic therapeutic deism. That's basically the belief that there is a God, and he wants people to be good and nice, to be better people, and he wants them to be happy and go to heaven. So it's the view that that God is there to bless you, you are supposed to be good, God is generally nice, loves you, and wants you to become a better person, the moralistic therapeutic deism. There is great unease in America with a God who is holy, or who is a judge, or the idea that Jesus might be the only way, or certainly in something like the reality of hell. All those things make most Americans very uneasy. And in that sense, our view of God is not very different from our view of Santa. (laughs) If you think about it, like the the song, right, that's, you better watch out, you better not, so God is watching, he sees everything, he's got a list, who's naughty, who's nice, don't cry, don't pout, and if you do all these things, you know what's going to happen is you're going to get good gifts. So you've got to earn it, you've got to deserve it, in order to get the gifts, but yet actually in the end, we all know that everybody gets gifts. It doesn't matter if you're good or not. You learn this eventually as a kid. I learned it because I had an older cousin who on the naughty nice scale, definitely was not on the nice scale. He didn't do well in school and he would call teachers bad names to their face. He got in uh, firecracker wars with his friends, shooting Roman candles at each other, and he fought with his sister constantly. One Christmas season, early in the Christmas season, he decided he was ready for a Christmas tree. So he went to the garage, found a saw, went to the neighbor's yard, and found their seven-foot fir tree that then ended up back in his house. And yet, every Christmas... The presents splayed out under the tree for him were as good or better than mine. This whole Santa thing doesn't work the way I thought it did. But see, that that idea of Santa is a projection of the American assumption of what God is like. So much so that I even had one friend who said he used to, as a kid, pray to Santa. And when he realized something more true, let's say, about Santa, he struggled to believe in God. We have this view that God is jolly, loving, generous, grandpa figure. He wants us to be good, not naughty, sure, but in the end, everyone gets gifts. So hold on to that view of God, the Santa moralistic, therapeutic, deistic view. And on the other hand, There's a challenge that some people have with believing in God because of human suffering and evil that we experience in this world. And the argument goes like this, is that suffering is proof that there cannot be a God. The philosophy, the logic goes like this, since I can think of no good reason for the evil that has happened, there must not be a good reason. And how could a good, loving God allow this sort of thing to happen? This was the the challenge and the reality that hit many Holocaust survivors. You can go read the articles, the books. Elie Wiesel 
struggled from Orthodox Jewish faith to I'm not sure I can trust or believe in this God anymore because he survived the Holocaust. And we get it. It makes sense. And part of the challenge that all of us have is that we have an innate sense of injustice. In every human being, there's an innate sense of injustice, of things that are not right and not fair. We see racism or abject poverty. We see the wrongs and the evils in the world. And our sense of justice and desire for justice is riled up. We want to see things right in the world, and they are not. And then there's the times when we personally experience injustice and evil and suffering. And it's not hard to step into vengeance, bitterness, hopelessness because of what you've endured. I think we need a God who is judge in order to entrust the evils we see and have experienced and to not take things into our own hands or continue violence or be controlled by what happened to us in the past. That's what the psalmist does in Psalm 129. He recounts evils that he has dealt with, lays them before God, and entrusts a God who is judge so that he is not controlled by it anymore. Let's look at Psalm 129, the first couple of verses. The first half of Psalm 129, and it's printed in your bulletin, is the psalmist recounting his past. He writes, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. So he's talking about his past, and he's describing being afflicted from when he was young, meaning this wasn't a one-off event. Something happened that happened over a season, over much of his life even. And then he goes on to describe it in very vivid terms, some of the most vivid language in in the Bible. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. I've never lived in an agricultural society, but the imagery is just vicious. Most of the commentators identify this as describing being beaten, whipped, scourged. And so it's a description probably of being enslaved. And whether this is talking about the psalmist himself dealing with it, or if it was Israel's story in Egypt or in Babylon, it is this very vivid imagery of your back being made like plowed fields. It's horrible. And yet, we're not sure that this is happening literally. He's identifying somebody that we're not sure who they are that's doing this. But then in verse 4, he he gets down to who they are, or at least he gives a term for them. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Now, that word wicked is a Hebrew word, rasha. It's throughout the Old Testament, the common word for the wicked, the evil, and can also be wickedness or evilness, right? Right? But if you go and read through how that word is used in the Old Testament, you wanted to define it, you would define it as disregard for God, as pride and self-sufficiency, using others or exploiting others for your own good and gain, being self-serving, disregarding God, using others, serving yourself. 
That's who the psalmist is experiencing. And he basically is describing that the wicked, these people, are trying to sow their plans in me. And whether it's literally the the lash of slavery or some other version of oppression and evil, he's talking about how the wicked want fields of evil. They want to sow seed of suffering and pain, and they're doing it in my back, in me. And my guess is maybe not everyone, but many people can relate to the psalmist in that sense when you look at your past. You've dealt with an unfaithful spouse who's betrayed you and left you. You are one of the one in four Americans who has dealt with physical or sexual abuse. Or you're one of the ones that's described in J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy when he talks about growing up in poverty in southern Ohio, northern Kentucky, And his description towards the end of the book is of the 10 identifiers of childhood trauma. And this is probably just pop psychology, so I'm just going to cite him and not actually the psychology because I don't know it. But he talks about adverse childhood experiences, A-C-E, ACEs. And there are 10 questions on a pop psychology sort of questionnaire that talk about the cumulative traumatic effect of traumatic events on kids. Did you ever experience abuse? physical, psychological, sexual, as a kid? Did you ever feel threatened by a parent? Did you watch one of your parents being abused? Did you experience neglect growing up, food insecurity, or life insecurity? Did you experience a traumatic instance of dysfunction, of drug abuse, or a suicide, or some other traumatic events? Most people who grow up in more healthy situations will have zero or one or even two at most of these 10 identifiers. But he said as he grew up, he noticed that he and every person in his community had seven, eight, nine out of 10. They grew up in poverty and that cycle of poverty fed on itself. The pain and the suffering became pain and suffering again. Many, many probably in here, can relate to the psalmist in his pain. But not all of us can relate to him in his hope, in his confidence. He writes in verse 4, The Lord is righteous, and he has cut the cords of the wicked. The Lord is righteous, and he has cut the cords of the wicked. The Lord has basically cut the, the, plow, the, the, the ropes that hold the plow to the ox. He's cut those off. He's redeemed me. He's rescued me. And he describes the Lord as righteous, which is a word which can also be uh, de- de- defined as just. It's talking about God's loyalty and faithfulness. The Lord is faithful. He is loyal. He is with me and will not leave me. The psalmist looks at how God has rescued him, God's past actions of salvation, and this gives him assurance of God's loyalty, that no matter what happens in his future, God is with him and will continue to be with him. He has confidence moving forward. But then in the second half of this psalm, he gets a little dark and vindictive. May all who hate Zion be Put to shame and turn backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up. 
with which the reaper does not fill the hand or the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say to them, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. What he's doing here is he's actually looking to the future, entrusting it to God, but doing so in the form of a curse on his enemies. He's praying that there would be judgment on his enemies. May they, verse 5, go forth in battle and end up losing dramatically, being terribly embarrassed and ashamed, having to retreat in defeat. And then verse 6 and 7, may the fields that they sow be no more than the the scattered seeds that end up on the rooftops. In the ancient Near Eastern world, all the roofs are flat, or at least they were, and they would have uh, cross beams with impacted mud to keep the rain out. And occasionally seed would fall on the rooftops because of where you were threshing wheat or the birds going by or things that just got scattered in the wind. But because of the type of soil, nothing would really grow there. He's saying, may all the plans of the wicked be no better than as if they, their entire field was a rooftop where a few p- pieces of grass sprout up and then die. They're not even going to get a handful of a harvest. May their entire future be cursed. And may they not hear the words the blessing of the Lord be upon you. And here in verse 8, he's citing Ruth chapter 2. In Ruth chapter 2, Boaz, the owner of the fields, comes out on the harvest day and sees the harvesters out there. And Ruth said, or Boaz says to the harvesters in Ruth chapter 2, the Lord be with you. And they reply back, the Lord bless you. Basically, what we do on a Sunday morning when we say the peace of the Lord be with you and also with you is taken from Ruth 2 or from here. It's may the blessing of God be on you and with you. It's a word of encouragement as you're in the midst of harvest that because of this great harvest that you're experiencing, it is clear God is with you. May he continue to be with you. And the harvester is replying back, yes, and God be with you as well. The psalmist is saying, the wicked, the people who have done evil to me, may no one ever give them that blessing of God because God is not with them. So what do we do with a poem in the Bible that wishes ill and judgment on an enemy? You know, I found as I was reading the commentators, they were all a little bit squeamish when it came to this point. They were trying to dodge around it a little bit. I'm not as worried about it. But you do have to wrestle with with this. Christianity makes a couple of claims. The Jesus guy comes along, right? And he says, turn the other cheek. Forgive how many times? 70 times 7, those who offend you. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So how do we reconcile that message with this curse psalm? I think on one level, if you have dealt with evil, if you have been the victim of abuse or betrayal or racism or any other kind of evil, you get the words of the psalmist. This is an honest response to suffering and evil. Injustice needs justice. Pain cries out for vindication. The challenge, of course, is that history is littered with genocides that are built on the idea of seeking vindication for past pains and evils. In Rwanda over 20 years ago, the Hutus rose up and slaughtered the Tutsis, over a million in a month. 
because of past evils and oppression. In the Balkans, when the war raged in Yugoslavia, in the former Yugoslavia in the 90s, it was built on ethnic tensions around past pains and offenses. And it created a cycle of vengeance and revenge. Miroslav Volf, a Croatian theologian who lived through that, but was here in the US, writes about a woman who endured suffering at the hands of enemies who used to be her friends. She was a school teacher and she found herself surrounded by a group of men from a different ethnicity in the Balkans. And they were beating her and yelling at her, a student, a next door neighbor, former friends. Years later when she had a son, she named him a word that in her language meant revenge. And she said, according to Wolf, as she fed her baby, that she prayed that he would live up to his name and get vengeance for her. Past evils can continue to have power on us. And we need to be aware of that. It's hard to not fall into one of a couple of responses when you've dealt with trauma or suffering or evil at the hands of others. One is to be a victim and to continue to be a victim, to repeat the same patterns over and over again. It's where you often see the cycles of somebody who is in an abusive marriage returning to it, or somebody who grew up under that going to it. Or you continue to have a victim mentality that is controlled by your past, imprisoned mentally, socially, because you're unable to trust people ever again. The opposite, it seems like, of being a victim is to be an avenger yourself. And many people who have dealt with something want to get back at the perpetrator. And if they can't get back at the per perpetrators in their lives, then they will want to get back and hurt people like the perpetrator. And so, you can never trust men. Or you can never trust black people. You can never trust a German. <laughs> you have to get back. You'll never enter into marriage because you've seen what it does. And you're getting vengeance by paying it out on people like the ones who hurt you. And part of that can be that cycle of unforgiveness. When you have been hurt badly, it is very easy to think they don't deserve forgiveness. Because you recognize you would never do something like that. They deserve whatever they get. I will not forgive them. But when you enter into that spirit of unforgiveness, right, it's a judgmental and self-righteousness that says, I would never do that or anything like that. And in bitterness and in judgmentalness, you're bound. Bound by what happened to you. Some who have dealt with pains are not victims or avengers, they just become evil themselves. An abuser becomes, is was somebody who was abused, an offender, somebody who was hurt. Past evils can easily afflict us 
haunt us, enslave us, and bind us, even though it happened way in the past and we're free from it, it still continues to enslave. And yet the psalmist says in verse 2, they have not prevailed against me. He's very positive. This is not a hopeless psalm. This is rather a hopeful and confident psalm. They have not prevailed against me. How can he say this? He says this because he is fully trusting God. And you see this because first he lays his pain before God. Secondly, he entrusts justice to God. And third, he sees evil as always against God first. The first thing we see the psalmist do is he lays his pain before God and seeks healing by being honest with God. You know, if there's anything that you could say about the psalmist in Psalm 129, it's that he is honest with God. He recalls his hurts, the evil that's been done to him, and he openly shares with God his desire for revenge. He's honest with his emotions. But he also has trust in God. He describes how God arrived to save him. He sees God as loyal and faithful. I think we do need to know that God is with us and won't give up on us. That his purposes, regardless of what we have endured or are enduring, won't be thwarted in the end. But I also think that when you actually lay things down before God in prayerful honesty, when we do that, we become aware that God is near. That God is near and he is hearing us and bearing with us. And as you lay down your pains honestly before God, he comforts and speaks to us. We begin to experience his spirit working in us and to actually believe that God won't leave us and that his good will prevail. The psalmist lays his pain before God honestly, but he doesn't do it alone, and neither should you or I. So it's not just go into your closet and pray honestly before God, because the psalmist says, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, and then he turns and says, let Israel now say. In other words, this psalm is being written for a corporate gathering and worship service. All of us, lay our pain before God together, recognizing that we're not meant to do this healing thing in a closet. Yes, you devotionally need to be honest before God, but there's also a place for counseling to have somebody that you're dealing with one-on-one in order to deal with the mental demons of past pain. There's a place to be prayed for, not just for you to go and pray in a closet, but to have people come and pray for you, to lay hands on you, Anything that has happened to you is a spiritual battle as well, and it needs to be engaged on the spiritual realm. You need people fighting with you in prayer. And you need to not do life alone either. We're called into friendships, small groups, church, and community in order to live life and to lay our pains before others and bear with one another in them. Healing is possible when we turn to God honestly and not alone. The first thing the psalmist does is he lays his pain before God honestly and seeks his healing. The second thing he does is he entrusts judgment and vindication to God. Notice that what he's doing at the second half of Psalm 129, he's not engaging in evil himself. He's praying for it, sure. But by praying for it, he's actually just laying it before God. Like Jesus who said, 
take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. To lay something fully before God, including your deepest frustrations and pain, is to say, God, I trust that you are judge and you will deal with the wicked so that I do not need to. But in order to do that, you have to actually believe that God is a judge. And that, of course, contradicts our moralistic therapeutic deism, our Santa Claus view of God. And some people have argued that the root of a lot of evil and violence and retaliation in the world is a belief in a God of judgment. Miroslav Volf, again, writing about this, argues in his book that there is a, his thesis is that in order to be nonviolent and non-retaliatory, you have to have a belief in a God who judges. And he says, look, that's going to be unpopular with many Christians in the West. But he goes on to say, imagine that instead of being in the West, you are standing in a post-war zone, and you're talking to those people about how they should be nonviolent and non-retaliatory and forgive their offenders. And among your listeners are people whose cities and homes have been plundered and burned to the ground whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. And your topic is, we should not retaliate because God is love. He said, soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home to hold the view that the only way to nonviolence is to reject that primitive belief in a God of judgment in a land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that view will invariably die. When you can trust that God will judge, you don't need to be. But if God is not judge, then when evil happens, you have to be the judge. Somebody does. Beth Moore, writing about Psalm 129, said the place of healing from pain and evil that we've experienced is comprehending God's loyalty and consciously leaving all vindication to him. It is crucial, she says, if you don't want to inadvertently go from being oppressed to being an oppressor. If we don't allow God to heal our hearts, minds, and habits, we will either continue to allow people to walk all over us or we will walk all over them. Freedom Freedom from the cycle of evil and the hope of ever forgiving people who have offended us is found in entrusting justice and judgment to God that one day, even if not in this life, one day, evil will be judged and all wrongs will be righted. First, he lays his pain honestly before God. Secondly, he entrusts judgment and vindication to God. And the third thing he does, the psalmist identifies evil done to him as against God. Now think about that. The words that he uses are the wicked, rasha, which I mentioned, and then in verse 5 he says, those who hate Zion. Now to hate Zion in the way that the wording is used, Zion was Jerusalem, but it also represented God's presence, God's work, God's intentions and aims in the world. So to hate Zion was to hate the works, aims, and intentions of God. And he's basically identifying the people who have afflicted him as those who reject God, who chart their own course, who live for themselves at the expense of others. In the process of this psalm, he's elevating the place of God as the ultimate victim 
of every evil. But that's hard to do if you've experienced evil. It's hard to say God is the ultimate victim and you are not. It seems sort of the backwards part of Psalm 51, and we, in our confession of sin in a few minutes, will pray the part of Psalm 51 that David writes when he writes, against you and you only have I sinned. Now, how can David say that when he has forcefully raped a woman, killed her husband, and lied about it to the entire nation? What about the dead husband and Bathsheba and the nation? How can David say, against you and you only have I sinned? He can say it because he recognizes the theological truth that none of the other stuff happens if he is rightly ordered before God. Nobody offends you if they haven't first offended God. Nobody walks into evil unless they reject God first. The gospel tells us that we are no different from perpetrators. All of us, the Bible tells us, are rasha, wicked. All of us, by nature, hate Zion, the works and aims of God. All of us reject the way of God. In the New Testament, which is the happy part, right? Paul says in Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are perpetrators. But the gospel says Christ died for the sins of the world and therefore Christ died for all of us. He took the judgment and wrath we deserve and he gives us the pardon and paradise that he deserved. The cross humbles us because in the end the cross tells us you and I are no different from the most evil people in the world. All of us need the cross. None of us get salvation apart from it. The key to releasing the power of evil against us is recognizing and believing this, that I am no different than the people who have done this to me. It's the only way to forgiveness. But the cross also tells us that he suffered, he was betrayed, he dealt with evil and injustice. On his back, deep furrows were plowed. The cross assures us that no matter what we go through, God gets it, and he is with us. The gospel is not only our hope for salvation and forgiveness, it is that, but it is also our hope for healing from the pain and injustices we have suffered or will. The gospel tells us that the nails that held Jesus to the cross are the same ones that will set us free. Let's pray. God, our Father, in a broken and fallen world, there is a lot of pain and suffering. And I know that many people in here have had fairly easy lives, but many here have not. And I pray that you would offer your healing embrace this morning. The remembrance that you have been with it, that you have endured it yourself, that you are with us, and that you are a God who will bring justice. 
Heal, Lord. Restore. Bring blessing and life out of our affliction. Amen.